Now we're going to continue the, this seven-part study that we're involved in, simply called Jesus in quotes. And the reason for that title is that John, uh, in writing his gospel, signaled right up front in the very first verse the angle from which he is presenting the life of Jesus. Um, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was helping us to understand that what was going to follow those few words were uh, him uh, recording for us things out of the life of Jesus that were not only Jesus speaking for God, but Jesus putting God's Word on display by how he lived and what he did. Just by being God in flesh, he was communicating God's heart to us. So the pages of John uh, are designed to um, help reveal to us what God is saying to us through Jesus. Now, John selected seven of all of the miracles that Jesus performed to present in detail in his gospel. And we're looking at each one of those seven miracles to see what they uh, uh, reveal of God speaking to us, what God is saying to us through these miraculous deeds that Jesus performed. And we encounter the fourth of these in John chapter 6, and I want to begin reading at verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Those uh, names are interchangeable. And it's, uh, when it says sea, it's a, it's a big lake. And it's in the northern part of, of Israel. Then a great multitude. And this word uh, in the original is not describing a handful. It's describing a lot of people. We don't, we don't know exactly. We're going to get a number later on in this passage. But even then we're not going to know exactly how many. But this is a big bunch of people. A great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. So right there we get confirmation that John did not record anywhere near all of the miracles of Jesus because to this point we've only seen one miracle of healing. We've already talked about that. But he says that this multitude is gathered to follow Jesus because of all of the people that he has healed of diseases. And Jesus went up on the mountain and when we... When you're talking about a mountain in Israel, you're not talking about the Himalayas. You're talking about something like that, that hill out there that you can see through those windows. Don't everybody turn there uh, right now, but now you all did. Anyway. <laughs> so it's more of a hill, but uh, an elevated spot. So Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. So you get the picture. Jesus uh, climbs this hill because, you know, for probably any number of reasons, but certainly to be able to have a platform from which to minister to all these throngs of people that are arriving. And now verse 4 says, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And that's just to help us know what time of year is so we can picture this scene. It's, it's early spring. And Israel is roughly on the same um, uh, kind of at the same seasonal temperature as we are. So you can imagine what it's like here in early spring, one of my favorite times of the year, and it's like that. That's what we're seeing here, Jesus on the hill, the multitudes coming to him. 
Verse 5, then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, so Philip's one of his disciples, he says, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? I mean, kind of a, an out of the blue sort of question that I'm not sure Philip was prepared for. But Jesus asked this kind of question that, you know, is a little bit surprising. Where will we buy? It doesn't even say how, what, where we're going to get the money to buy the bread. He says, where will we buy bread that all these may eat? Verse 6, but this he said to test him. Take note of that. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have even a little. So a denarius is a, a Roman coin and 200 denarii would be about two-thirds of a common laborer's annual wage. So, you know, uh, let, let's, uh, for us here it's maybe uh, $20,000, $30,000. It's a lot of money. And, and he said, look, 200 denarii, Jesus, isn't going to be enough to buy bread. We can't do this. It's not possible to feed all these people. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that, they, uh, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, so another disciple, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two, two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. It was common in those days when you counted a crowd to just count the men. I, I know that that's probably not uh, the, you know, what we would do, and it seems a little sexist, and who knows whatever else, but that's what they did. So... Um, it's likely that the crowd is much larger than that, perhaps uh, two or three times as many people. So we're talking lots of folks. Verse 11, And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to his disciples, and the, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So Jesus takes these five loaves and two fish, and he begins to break them up and hand them to the disciples, and the disciples hand them to the thousands of people that are out there until everybody has had all they want. You know, this is not like Survivor. I'm, I told you last week I'm a Survivor fan. And on Survivor, you, you don't need to know the whole story, but there'd be a camp of about 10 people, you know, on, the, on a kind of a deserted island, and you know, they pretty much starve their way for about a month and a half because um, none of them know how to take care of themselves in the wilderness. But every once in a while, somebody will catch a fish. And it's like this big deal. They got this little tiny fish and 10 people. And everybody will be standing around the campfire and they're roasting this thing and everybody's mouth's watering. And you bring this little fish to them and everybody gets a little, little bit, right? That's not what's going on here. Jesus is breaking the bread and the fish and pretty soon everybody's caught up in the distribution of this stuff and has lost track that this started with five loaves and two fish. And before you know it, everybody has had more than they need. They've had all they wanted. 
Verse 12, so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up, them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Amazing. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet, meaning the Messiah, who is to come into the world. So an amazing miracle. And I want to submit to you that what God is speaking to us about through what Jesus did here has to do with how we respond to need. Need. We are surrounded by need. Aren't we? Our own. The needs of our friends and family. The, the, the need in this world. I, you know, I, I'm sure it has always been the case, but for some reason in these days, I am finding myself increasingly overwhelmed by the need in the world. The starvation, the trafficking of human, pe human beings, the displacement of whole nations of people. Uh, and, you know, I, like you, am appealed to constantly through advertisements and phone calls and uh, you know, personally, for people asking for donations and other ways of trying to help be, get involved to deal with the overwhelming need in the world. And you feel like, how can we, how is there any way to address the need in this world? Not to mention my own. So we all have to kind of stare down this issue and God wants to speak to us through this miracle about a godly way to respond to need. And there are three people in this story who respond to the need that's present, the need of all of these people to be fed, and each of them responds in a different way and for the few minutes that we have remaining, I would like for you just to join with me in taking a look at them. The first is Philip. Philip. And Jesus says to him, Philip, where are we going to buy bread to feed all these people? And it tells us something interesting. It tells us that Jesus said this to him to test him. Need will always test us. It's always a test. Now listen, I need to be clear about this. God does not create need. But he uses it to test us. Also, I want you to make sure, that, let me just back up and say need, the fact that there is so much need in this world, so much need in my life and yours, is not God's fault it is not by his design. It's the result of our sin. We own it. It's our doing. We have a God in heaven who wants to meet need. But he uses the need that is existing in this world to test us. He already knows what he's going to do. Did you hear that? 
Jesus, it, we're told, already knew what he was going to do. But he asked the question to Philip, what, how, where are we going to buy bread for these people? Because he was testing him. Let me ask you something. When did Jesus know what he was going to do? Did he know that morning before the little boy whose lunch they end up using packed it? Did he know the day before, the week before that, the year before? When did Jesus know what he was going to do? God knows everything that can be known. This will bend your brain. And he has always known it. Now, explain that to me. I, you know, but that's what the Bible tells us about our God. So when we confront need, it's not a surprise to God. He is not, it's not unknown to him. It's not unanticipated. And it is not something he's indifferent about. He already knows what he's going to do. But you've been presented with a test. Now, when God tests us, it's not to reveal our weakness. It's not to shame us in failure. It's not to show us how rotten we are and how faithless we are. It's not like the SATs, something you have to fear. Okay? <coughs> when God tests us, it is designed to reveal what he's doing in us is to draw out of us the, pr the product of his work in our lives, to, to put on display the splendor of his grace at work in our lives. Now, yes, it can reveal what we still need to grow into. Sometimes it, sh it shows us, well, yeah, Lord Jesus, I really need to allow you to work this way in my life in a better way. But that's not to shame us. That's to draw us farther that's to call us into uh, the life in Jesus that we all want. So a test is not something for us to fear. It's something for us to enter into with confidence. But when we are tested by need, we can respond like Philip. And Philip focused on the need. And in a sense, he said, it is too big. It's too big. I'll bet you've had that experience. This is too big. Not long ago, you know, a month or so ago, I guess now, got a call from uh, Pat Segari. Her husband had just passed away. Body's still in the room. Would you come, Pastor? Of course. I'm on my way, knowing I'm going to step into a home filled with people who are dealing with incredible pain and loss, unexpected passing of a dear loved one, a wife who is not going to be with her husband any longer in this life. And I'm thinking, this is too big. What do I say? How can I, how can I do anything, God? that is going to meet this need. You know, I could give you lots of examples. You have your own. We know what it's like to confront need and feel like, we, we focus on the need and then feel like, well, 
Why bother? Well, what can I do? It's, it is too big. And then there's Andrew. Andrew comes along and he, I don't know, I don't think he, you know, wrestled the lunch away from the kid, but he somehow gets, gets a hold of, out of the, picture there's thousands of people and he's come up <laughs> with the only food available, you know, uh, five loaves and two fish. He comes to Jesus, he says, well, look, Jesus, we, we've got here five loaves and two fish. And then he says this, but what is that among so many? And Andrew focused on, his, on himself, on his own resources. This is all I have. And in a sense, he was saying, I, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. But there's a third person in this story responding to the need, and who is that? It's not a trick question. It's the kid. <laughs> it's the kid. It's the kid. Now, I, I I don't imagine it was an easy thing for this kid to give up his lunch. I just know my myself, right? And especially in light of the multitudes that are there. Look, I was, uh, uh, one, I was the oldest of four boys growing up in my family. And, w you know, when my mom would bring the groceries home, before she could get them in the shelves, in the pantry, we'd already state claim to our portion, each of us, <laughs> right? Because, uh, well, that's the way boys are. I don't know about girls, but man, food is a por an important thing. My, my daughter, I was babysitting my grandkids last week, and uh, she's got three, and so I, the youngest is two. And she said, I don't know what's going on. I guess, I guess that, that little uh, rascal is growing again because all he wants to do is eat. I can relate to that. So I don't think it was an easy thing for this little boy to give up his lunch. But he does. He does. And there's, a, there's an important, powerful truth that we need to gain from this. God is speaking to us through how this little boy responds to need. He, unlike Philip and Andrew, Philip looked at the need and said, it's too big. Andrew looked at his own resources and said, I don't have enough. This little boy looked to Jesus. He focused on Jesus. And he, in fact, was saying, you can do anything. Now, while I was with my grandchildren last week, three of them, babysitting them while their mom was gone for a couple of days, I, Sue and I, we haven't had little kids in our, in our house for uh, a long time. So we, we forget some. And, and when I'm with the little guys, it kind of reminds me of stuff I used to know about what, it's, what little guys, little children are like. And um, I took them out to Target and bought, you know, let them pick something out from the toy section and bought them all a little gift. And when we brought it home, it was just so eye-opening to watch them begin to play. Because they're, they're there. They get out the little cars and there's people in there. And they're on real roads, and they're going places in their mind. And get this picture, you know. My, my little granddaughter, she's just turned five, uh, got her this little um, hair salon set thing, and we spent hours playing hair salon. 
but, but, but she's there. She's washing and applying conditioner and combing and straightening and blow drying and she's there. And I'm not, I'm not trying to equate imagination with faith, but there's a, an intersection between those two. There's a childlikeness that most of us lose over time of hitting against barriers and our own shortcomings and failures that we lose that we must have if we're going to respond to need the way that faith requires. When I was a little boy, I had a, a little electric car that, some, that I must have gotten as a gift. Now in those days, we didn't have anything like what they do today. You know, it had no bells or whistles, didn't make any sounds whatsoever, no remote control, but it did have a little electric motor in it and a couple of batteries. So you push a button and it goes, you know, like that, and that was about it. I did what all boys do, I tore it apart. And I had got the little electric motor out and hooked it up to the batteries and I could make it, you know, like that. And I, and, um, I thought that was cool. And then I thought, I know what, I'm going to make a tank. And I'm going to motorize my tank with this little motor. So my dad had this big pile of wood out back. I went and got a hammer and some nails and started pounding the thing together. Make this big box, slap some wheels on it. And I was certain, I was as certain as the sun would rise tomorrow that when I hooked up that little electric motor, I was going to go driving around the neighborhood. Because I had not to that point encountered any sort of real limits or, or, you know, the kinds of things that life throws at us to crush that out of us. I don't think God, God wants, is not, he, he wants us to become mature, all right? But maturity doesn't mean skeptical. It doesn't mean faithless. We need to recover childlikeness. You can do anything. I've lost my job. My marriage is on the rocks. I've been diagnosed with this. But you can do anything. What is it today that ch challenges your faith, that the need that you possess or a friend or some need in the world that seems overwhelming to you, that a childlike heart wants to respond to today? There's something in you that wants to rise up and say to Jesus, here's my loaves and fishes. You can do anything. This is recording number 11250 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Foursquare Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, March 12, 2017. This is the fourth message in a series titled, Jesus this message by Randy Bolt is titled, Responding to Need.